Take out your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45 will cover another whole chapter tonight. And a message out of chapter 45 called The Fruits of Forgiveness. As we've kind of journeyed through the life of Joseph as he's been in Egypt, as it began with his sale of his brothers into slavery, a lot of questions come up in, in the normal human mind, and I would think that most of us are fairly normal tonight. Uh, but as you, as you think on Joseph's life, it would have been really, really, really e- easy for him to be excruciatingly bitter, very resentful, monumentally hateful, ready for retribution. There, there are a lot of things that we could just say about Joseph. It's just like, ah, I wouldn't blame him if at this point in time he just threw all of his brothers in jail. But what we find in the life of Joseph, mirrored really in, in a lot of ways in just the life of Jesus, what we see Jesus doing for us, what we see in the life of Joseph is really the fruits of forgiveness. When someone clearly, without any reservation, chooses to forgive and does what God asks them to do, then the fruit of it is what you see in this passage, especially tonight. Chapter 45 is this beautiful picture that Joseph is now going to reveal exactly who he is to his brothers. Now remember up to this point, he's been speaking to them in Egyptian. Uh, He's not revealed that he actually knows their mother tongue, that he knows Hebrew. Uh, He's hidden who he actually is from them. And they are still believing that there's a possibility they may be paying a price for all of their deception But tonight we get to this beautiful passage. We'll pick up, uh, cover the entire chapter, and we're really going to focus in at least initially on verses 5 through 8 because there's a beautiful truth in here about the sovereign plans of God, uh, and it stands out just absolutely marvelously. So let's pray and ask God to speak through his word. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this chapter because it means so much to me personally. Lord, when I think on my own life, there's so many things that uh, I certainly wished would have turned out differently, would have been done differently. Lord, people that, uh, God, I I know ultimately uh, you had a different plan, but your plans have prevailed anyway. And so, Father, we thank you for your sovereignty, uh, for your beautiful work in our lives of just overruling the plans of man, ultimately by your grace And so speak to us now through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis 45. And then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. And so you kind of get the picture. Joseph is with his brothers. He's in a room. There are other uh, members of of the royal Pharaonic court there. Uh, and so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He, he's about to really reveal to them who he is. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And so he kicks everyone out of the room, and he just breaks down in a heap. You know, so often, if you look at the fruit of bitterness, if you look at the fruit of anger, if you look at what happens when you hold on to resentment for long periods of time, if there isn't a, a time when, it, when you're able to turn that over to the Lord 
and, and really commit yourself to the process of forgiveness and restoration, then you get exactly the opposite of what happens here in Joseph's life. You get screaming, yelling, anger, throwing of things, uh, sometimes physical violence. There's all kinds of things uh, that come out, and they're the opposite of what you see in this particular passage. This is someone who absolutely has forgiven his brothers. That doesn't mean that he's forgotten that they sold him into slavery. It doesn't mean that he no longer remembers the things that happened to him. Forgiveness is a state of mind wherein you, just like the Lord has done for you, where you declare that person to be innocent in your eyes. Just as the Lord forgives us, so forgiveness should be in the life of a believer. It does not mean that that person earns it. It doesn't mean that person deserves it. It doesn't mean they've done everything to warrant it. It means from your side of the equation that you look at that person and you see them as the Lord sees you, still a sinner, and yet you're able to say you're forgiven. Joseph is picturing real biblical forgiveness exactly like God has it for us and exactly like we should have it for other people. And then Joseph, verse 3, said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Now remember, they don't know this. They're, they're still believing that he's just simply the grand vizier. He's the second in charge in all of Egypt. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And there's the proof that they're still not really fully aware that he's telling them the truth, that they are, in fact, standing in front of their brother. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And so they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now I want you to start marking what they did versus what God has now done with what they did. And it says very clearly, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. This is exactly how God looks at the life of every single person on this planet who knows him. God can't forget completely. He knows everything. He always knows everything. So God recognizes our problems. But God chooses to forgive and he erases every bit uh, of our sinful behavior. And notice how this looks from that side of the equation. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Man's perspective, these brothers sold their brother Joseph. God's perspective, God sending Joseph there before the brothers ever get there. Isn't that amazing? The sovereign plans of God. It doesn't make what the brothers did right. God could have gotten Joseph down there another way. But this is how God's sovereign plans work out in our lives. And we're going to see this in, in its final detail in the very last chapter of this book. But this is a beautiful picture of God taking things which the enemy intended for evil and using them for good. This is another Romans 8.28 moment. That God working together all things together for the good to those who love God. 
And are they called according to his purpose? So it says, you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years of famine have been in the land, and there are five years still in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a prosperity for you, or, or posterity, excuse me, before you on the earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. Again, you sold me, God sent me. You sold me, God sent me. This is God absolutely overriding the evil that mankind does. Because, let's face it, from a human perspective, this is a desperate situation that could have easily turned out a lot differently. Amen? This could have been really, really, really bad for Joseph. This didn't have to work out this way. If these plans had truly been simply God just allowing whatever to happen because he doesn't care, then not only would Joseph not be in, would Joseph not be in this position, but the brothers would not have the food they need for their families. And so now, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And again, from a human perspective, it was absolutely decisions of the brothers to sell him into slavery. From God's perspective, Joseph, this is how I'm going to get you where I need you to be. And this is such a beautiful picture of how God uses circumstances in our lives that are negative. Now, most of I were to do a poll and just the people in this room, and I, would, I were to say to you, how many of you really enjoy negative circumstances in your life? There is not one person in here who's going to raise their hand. Legitimately. You know, you might do that because maybe you want your neighbors to be impressed with your spirituality. But the fact of the matter is, nobody enjoys negative circumstances in their life. Nobody runs around, you know, I just hope I get sold into slavery. You know, I just can't wait until the next time I break a leg or, you know, my car gets slammed into by somebody going through a stop sign. I just can't wait until somebody rips me off or clears out my bank account by some, you know, fraud over the internet. You know, I, I, just, I just so enjoy being taken advantage of. No, nobody thinks that way. And so our humanness is tempted to believe that anytime negative things happen in our life, that we're being punished by God, or, or we, in essence, have a little bit of belief, many of us as Christians, in kind of what I like to call Christian karma. You say, well, I deserve it, so, you know, I'm just getting what I deserve. I've done some evil things, so I'm just going to... That's not it at all. God very often allows difficult, hurtful, harmful things in the lives of believers because he fully knowing what's going to happen, because he sees the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once, amen? That's what we call providence, that's what that means. It means pro, before, video, meaning to see. God's providence means that before it happens, he sees it. So God in his providence is looking at this situation going, I know exactly what I'm going to do with this. They're going to sell Joseph, but I'm going to send Joseph. They're going to try and kill Joseph, but I'm going to exalt Joseph. They're going to try and take from Joseph, but I'm going to give to Joseph. God overrules the plans of man. He is perfectly capable of taking those negative things which you do not think you deserve, which maybe you don't, which hopefully you would not have to go through, which 
Hopefully you wouldn't have to go through them, but he's perfectly capable, capable in his providence of taking very negative things and doing very wonderful things with them and at the same time not infringing on anybody's free will. Notice what's played out here. God doesn't step in and stop every evil thing. God doesn't just simply intervene in everyone's life and every time something negative comes your way, he's just going to stop it automatically. And there are a lot of Christians that believe that that's what God does. That if I just do what God wants me to do, then he's going to you know, forever keep me out of harm's way. That's just simply not true. Matter of fact, God might not only allow you to be in harm's way, he may actually put you in harm's way as he did with the disciples. He pushed them into a storm, amen? That storm didn't just arise and caught God off guard on the Sea of Galilee. It says, Jesus, knowing full well, pushed them out into the storm, knowing that the boat was going to get swamped, knowing they were going to cry out, knowing they were thinking they were going to die. And so this is a situation exactly like that. Not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler throughout all of the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry for you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And so these first 10 verses kind of give us a little bit of picture here of God working sovereignly in his plans. It also, when it references where they're going to live, it references a tad bit of archaeology, which is interesting to us as the body of Christ. Because in the fruits of forgiveness as we see them here, some people say, well, this never happened because there's been no archaeological evidence of the Jewish people ever being in the land of Egypt. Um, And until about 45, 50 years ago, uh, that was largely true. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence until they began to excavate in the city of Karnak uh, near Thebes on the Nile River. uh, And they found references to words like the best land, which in Hebrew, guess what, means Goshen. And so the Jewish slaves were not only apportioned to that land, um, but at the time that these events occurred, an interesting thing happened in the rule of the pharaohs. Uh, A group of primarily Greek-taught and and, uh, Greek-descendant rulers, um, the Hyksos, uh, which was a racial name for, for a Greek form, uh, meaning rulers of foreign lands, during the 15th and 16th dynasties of, of the rulers of Egypt uh, came in, into prominent rulership. They were the pharaohs of Egypt. And so when you get to the book of Exodus, there's a simple thing that begins the book of Exodus that this was the first pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And the reason that's important is because there were several pharaohs that did know Joseph. And so this land that's now called Goshen uh, here in in our chapter uh, happens to be in the Nile River Delta. And they began excavating there in the 1970s. And lo and behold, they found a little over a thousand graves um, with significant remains in them. Some of them have now been analyzed for DNA. And it is almost entirely a Jewish graveyard. And so in the land, described as Goshen, 
under the control of the Hyksos Empire, uh, these Greek, in essence, Greek pharaohs of Egypt, um, during the exact time, by the way, of Thutmose I, uh, which would have been the ruler, which would have been the pharaoh at the time that these events occurred, fits in exactly to the biblical narrative and exactly to the biblical timeline so that when you read your Bible, you're actually reading about a period of history where the Jewish people, the Semitic peoples, and the Egyptian rulership happened to all be Semites. And so you might have wondered, well, why was this Pharaoh so nice to Joseph? Well, because it just happened to be during the period of time when there were Semitic Pharaohs, uh, rulers of foreign lands, during the the Hyksos Empire, uh, and this all happened in about 1540 B.C., which would fit into the timeline uh, in the biblical narrative. Uh, And so people began to say, well, you know, it's not really that much of a reference to it uh, until you start to look at some of the names referenced in your Bible and the pharaohs that were referenced along with them, uh, one of them being Ramses, Ramses II, um, I have actually seen, Connie and I have seen the reference to Ramses, Ramses II, and to Thutmose uh, in the Sinai Peninsula in a place called Solomon's Pillars. And so when you go there, there's actually hieroglyphs that reference these two pharaohs. Now going back to the city of Karnak, there's an interesting wall that they uncovered uh, a little over 20 years ago, and it's this guy. And if you notice, every last one of those little guys up there Um, has a beard Egyptians did not have facial hair Um, they had a little kind of kind of a little less beard than that a little tiny goatee and if you were able to read the the hieroglyphics on there you're going to find out that these are all foreign kings they're very specifically all Jewish foreign kings very very specifically they are the kings of the land of Canaan and very 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 specifically mentioned in there are the cities of Megiddo and the cities of the southern Levant, which would be modern-day Israel. And so there are over 300 kings from the land of the Canaanites uh, listed on there, and a whole bunch of them happen to be Jewish. And so when you read your Bible, it is historically accurate. And these pharaohs, so this is in Egypt, and it's mentioning Jewish kings, and every last one, if you look on the inside, that's their name. And you notice their hands are behind their back. That's because these are the kings that were taken over by the Egyptians. And so it, it gives credence to the fact that the pharaohs actually ruled uh, the, the area that we now call Israel and the land that when you travel to southern Israel, you still see the remains uh, of the Egyptian occupation. In fact, if you go to the cities of the Decapolis, you travel to Beth Shean, There's actually an altar on top of a hill, which happens to be the same hill that was surrounded by a wall on which King Saul and his sons were killed and hung on that wall. They were beheaded, and at the top of it is actually a little tiny monument uh, to the Egyptian queen uh, that was responsible for the area during the time uh, that these these words were written that we're reading right now in our Bible, at least the reference time of history. And so your Bible is very accurate. These are real people, a real situation. There were really Hebrews that were held captive eventually for 400 years uh, in the land of Pharaoh. As you continue on and we pick up, 
And it says now in, in the latter half of verse 10, and you shall be near me and your children, you shall have your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. In other words, he's saying, go, I want to bring you to the best land. The reason it was called the best land is you're talking about the Nile River Delta. Um, one of the things that, that becomes very obvious to you when you travel to the Middle East, uh, especially that particular land, when you're down in this thing that's called the Anvil of the Sun or the Sinai Peninsula, uh, when you have the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea and these, these two uh, seas that are there, one has the Suez Canal, connects to the Mediterranean, the other does not. Uh, but when you travel down to Elat and you're looking towards the west into the, into the Sinai, uh, as you look at that area, there is literally nothing out there. It, there is no way in the world you could be calling that the best land. And if you travel all the way across the Sinai, it looks exactly the same all the way across the Sinai. And in fact, if you've ever seen pictures of Cairo, Egypt, and you look at it and see where the pyramids are, you couldn't call that the best land because that also is nothing but sand desert, sand and rocks. But when you get to the Nile and you get to the place where these graves were found in the Nile River Delta, um, that area actually gets topsoil deposited on it every single season because as soon as it rains and the river floods, guess what it deposits in the Nile, Nile River Delta? It deposits topsoil. And so almost all of the farming was done in that region, which is the region where we find the history of the Jewish people in captivity. And so your Bible says that this particular grand vizier, this person we know as Joseph, which was the assistant to Pharaoh, who was undoubtedly a Hyksos king, a Hyksos Pharaoh, uh, deposits them in the Nile River Delta, which is the only place that had arable land where they could actually farm as they used to farm before the drought uh, in the Jordan River Valley. And so he says, look, I want you to come, bring all your flocks, bring your herds. If he had brought them into the land that we call the Sinai, he would have been bringing them there to die. But if he put them in the best land, the Nile River Delta, then this would have actually been what would have been their end. And there I will provide for you, lest you and your household, when you have come, come into poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, before your eyes, in the eyes of my brother Benjamin, you will see all that my mouth, all my mouth speaks to you. And you should tell my father of all of my glory in Egypt. And for all that you have seen, and all that you shall, you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept all over them. For his, and his brothers talked with them. Now, now imagine, there's only one language that they know, amen? That's Hebrew. So you can imagine what language he's speaking, Hebrew. So they're having this Hebrew conversation in the land of Egypt. And they're going, there is no way in the world that this Pharaoh of Egypt is going to know our language. And they're having now a conversation and now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come, and so it pleased Pharaoh. So why would it please Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh wasn't exactly adverse. Uh, all of the Egyptian Pharaohs would have been highly adverse to doing any good towards any conquered nation, unless those Pharaohs happened to be partially related uh, to the Jewish people. And so archaeology and your Bible in this case match up because the Pharaoh at that time would have been partially related to the Jewish people. And so it pleased Pharaoh. 
uh, and his servants well. And, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals, depart, and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land. And you'll eat of the fat of the land. And so that name, I will give you the best of the land. Best of the land actually is the Hebrew word Goshen. And you'll eat of the fat of the land. And now you're a command to do this. Take the carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. And bring your father and come. And also do not be concerned about your goods. For all of the best of the land of Egypt is yours. Now, if you were going to bring a people out of the land of Canaan and you were going to bring them into a place where uh, they were going to be captive and you wanted them to all go willingly, you're probably not going to tell them, hey, you're going to be in slavery. Amen? Uh, That would be their their later end. But in this case, there is a friendly reason they're coming. They're actually going to be preserved. Again, you see the way God works in this whole situation. The best of the land is all yours. And then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey and gave to all of them, each man, uh, changes of garments. Now, now, that may not seem like anything to us because we probably could all go through our closet and pull out 10 changes of garments and give them to somebody and we wouldn't even know that they were missing. Uh, but this was a huge deal then. Garments were very costly um, very often, for instance, if you had a full-length tunic, uh, that, that might well cost you the wages that you would earn for an entire year. So giving somebody a change of clothes was a big deal. This was not a light matter. It wasn't like I said, you know, go to TJ Maxx and pick something up for yourself. It, it was a big deal to give someone a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave three, 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent him to his father with these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and food for his father and for the journey. And so you can see that that Pharaoh is actually now being used of God to to bring about the, the things that would be necessary for these brothers to move on from this moment. And we'll look at that in a little bit. And said, look, here, I, I, I wanna take care of you. And so he sent his brothers away and they departed and said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. He gives them more than enough for the journey and he gives a quintuple portion uh, to Benjamin. And it's interesting because when you think about, Joseph knew about this whole, you know, this, this, this whole disparity this entire time and knew that Benjamin was paying a little bit of a price and now Benjamin's even rewarded uh, for his extra part in this whole scenario. And then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. When you have lived for 23 years now with the thought that your child is is gone, uh, this would be a very, very, very normal reaction for most. What do you mean he's alive? How can this possibly be? Aren't you the ones that brought me the bloodied coat of many colors? Didn't you bring me proof that he was dead? What happened to his body? So there's two things going on. Number one, he's in belief. Number two, he's beginning to realize that his own sons deceived him. That they had actually had a hand in it. 
But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry, to carry him, and the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived, then Israel, notice the change there from Jacob back to Israel, before he's still Jacob, thinking about being the heel catcher, the deceiver, and now then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go, and I will see him before I die. And so I want to pull some things out of here in the way that forgiveness is demonstrated. The first thing that you can see, and it's, it's fairly clear, is the recognition of the transgression is really the beginning of forgiveness. If you don't recognize that you've done anything wrong, it's really tough to even seek restoration and forgiveness. <clears throat> and so if you've noticed, the brothers have kind of continually looked at this situation, and each step along the way, they've started going further the right direction. Before they were each time going further the wrong direction, they just added one sin on top of another sin. And as they begin to allow this thing to be dealt with in their hearts, they're actually moving the right direction now. All kinds of thoughts had to be tumbling through their minds. How could this Egyptian ruler know the name of their deceased brother? Why, why was somebody claiming that they knew their father? Those types of things. And so as they see God's hand, they begin to respond to that kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And, and I want to just encourage you, if you're in a situation in your life where you're not sure what to do, and there is a way that leads to forgiveness and restoration, there's a way that leads to bitterness, I don't think I need to tell you which way you need to go. You need to move towards the direction that brings about restoration and forgiveness. And these brothers delayed doing that for a very long time. They refused to admit to their father Jacob. And now they're in a situation to where the proof is in the pudding. They're, their brother's alive. They have all these things. And, and that forgiveness is now starting to become a reality to them because of the compassion. Compassion is an essential part of forgiveness. It is very difficult to maintain bitterness and anger and hatred and actually forgive someone and see restoration happen. But once you begin to embrace compassion, in other words, seeing someone else's pain, their need, what has happened to them. You may not even understand exactly why it is that that's important, but when you recognize someone else's need and you begin to move their direction, it draws them back towards forgiveness. What does not draw people back to forgiveness is when you maintain anger and bitterness and a stiff arm that says, look, until you change, I'm not doing anything to help you out. It is the fact that God forced these guys into a situation to where they need to address the issue of their hearts. Look, I, I, I've messed up. We've messed up. And so their mouths are basically stopped by the fact that they're being treated with compassion. You remember what Jesus said? Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other one to him. If they ask you to go one mile, go two, that's compassion. Compassion, when it works out, leads us towards these steps of restoration and forgiveness. When you recognize you had a part in it, you're willing to, to put down the weapons, you're willing to bury the hatchet, you're willing to say, look, I have sinned and I'm sorry and let's make this right. A second thing that we see here is when we repent, when we do what we can do, 
Because look, let's face it, we can't change anybody else's mind. We can't change their actions. Amen? If someone's wronged you, you're not going to be able to force them into doing the right thing. But you can set up a situation to where you are no longer part of the problem. They are left alone with that situation themselves to where God can deal with them clearly. Where I very often see this is in situations where there's something going on in a marriage. There's two people. There, there are several reasons why this particular situation has occurred. And, and something's broken in the relationship. As long as both people are saying, look, I, I'm not moving an inch. Guess what happens? Nobody's moving an inch. But the moment somebody starts coming back towards restoration, then the other person is drawn towards it. And here's what happens as a secondary step. Once that begins to happen, once you do your part to get out of the way, that person is left with God. And now God is able to speak into their life because you're no longer the focus of their attention, of their ire. you're, You're not the problem anymore. They've got a problem with God and they can see it. But what happens when we stay in the way, we won't repent. We, we do not turn back towards the Lord. We're not reassured that God loves us. And the other person is also not assured that God loves them. And so if you want something fixed in a relationship, be compassionate, be forgiving, repent of your own situation that you have brought to the situation, the things that you've brought into the situation have made it worse, and get out of the way so that God can work in the lives of other people. You can see that in this passage. Finally, there's no one standing in the way of what God wants to speak into these brothers' lives. It's like, okay, we're gonna just lay all this out. Here's all the goods. Go back to your father. Let's get this done. Because there's nothing they can say. They've been sent back with the message. Tell your father that they're, they're, your brother's alive. Joseph's alive. They're going to have to get out of the way. And God's going to reassure them. And we'll see this uh, in a greater way actually in chapter 50 when we get there. A third thing. There comes a time, and you can see this in verses 9 through 13, when it's just simply time to move on from your past. It's just time to let it go. It's time to stop messing with it, stop flirting with it, stop looking at it, stop reminding yourself of what happened, stop obsessing over the things that you're thinking about in the past and just let your past go. I, I see an awful lot of people that are bound up in their past And they just regurgitate the same story over and over and over and over again. And and they think that by retelling it, that somehow it's going to get better. And frankly, there comes a point in time, I think, in most people's lives where you have to make a choice whether you are going to forgive and move on or whether you're going to hang on to that and just stay embittered. And when you choose to forget, forgive, and move on from your past... Because Joseph here is Lord of all. These brothers don't have to live in destitution. You see, they could have hung on to their story. Let me give you an alternate narrative here. We're not taking anything you give us. We're not loading up the donkeys. We're not going to tell our father. We're going to hang on to the past. We're going to keep the lie going. We're going to keep the charade going. We're going to pretend that we never saw you. Guess what would have happened to them? They would have gone back to Canaan and died. 
And that's exactly what happens to people when they refuse to let go of their past and move on. They hang on to the lie. They hang on to the story. The lie is the lie from the enemy that somehow hanging on to your bitterness and your anger and your hatred is going to make it better. And it's not. The enemy's going, well, hang on to it. You, you might need that chip in the game a little bit later. So hang on to your bitterness. Hang on to your anger. Hang on to your hatred. Grab hold of that and just seize it. You know, because you never know when you might need to bring that back up. These brothers were forced into a situation to where they had to say, we were wrong, our brother is good, he's still alive, and we are not going to live this charade anymore. It ends right now. We're going to let the past be the past, and we're going to make a new future. That's how forgiveness works. That's how compassion is demonstrated through forgiveness. And when you do it, when, when you're able to, to do exactly what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2, he, he, he begins chapter 2 really with this, with this story about God's, this great riches that we have in Christ. But he goes on to say, God is rich in mercy because of the great love wherein he loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. It doesn't say when we were really, really awesome, It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Just God made us alive. And sometimes you have to look at yourself as having the capacity to make other people alive. To say, look, I'm I'm treating this as past. I'm just simply not going to hold this against you. You didn't make it right. You didn't fix the whole situation. But I so desire for what God desires in in my life. I, I know I have had the rich mercy of God poured out upon me. And by mercy, I simply mean that God does not get us what, give us what we deserve. Amen? That's what mercy is. God's compassion on that side is, here's what you've earned and God doesn't give it to you. Grace is him giving you what you have not deserved. That's the other side of it. But when God is merciful to us, he's saying, look, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to give you what you've earned because if I did, you'd get harmed by it. So instead, I'm going to give you the very best land. That's how we're supposed to treat others who have sinned against us. That's why Jesus said, look, go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Return good for evil. Don't return evil for evil. Return good for evil. That's why he said it. It's in view in this passage. These brothers deserve to be miserable. Amen? They deserve, anything they would have gotten, we'd all been going, well, you deserve that. But be careful when you think that way, because when you think that way about somebody else, you have to wonder, mm, mm, do I really want that for myself? And the answer is, no, you don't. You want God to be merciful to you, so be merciful to other people. And so you move on from their past, and you move on from your past that way. And a fourth thing, and and I I hope you can see it in this passage, make sure you have total reconciliation. That that means that there can't be any leftover things. Get it all out on the table. Joseph has suffered, he's triumphed, he's done all these things that are pictures of Christ throughout all of this. He's been on the mountaintop and he's been in the bottom of the valley. 
But when you look at how he, he responds to all of this, he, he's basically saying, look, I so want this completely done that he's over there hanging on Benjamin's neck. He's kissing his brother. He's not like grabbing hold of a little piece of this and going, well, you know, I'm going to just keep this one in my back pocket in case you ever mess with me again. If you ever get to the place to where you might think about doing something to me again, you need to know that I have this piece of information still stuck right here in my back pocket. There was absolute total reconciliation from Joseph's part. He is holding nothing against his brothers. He's welcoming them. He's saying, look, you're welcome back into my heart. You see, here's the truth of real love. If you can't be hurt, you also can't be really loved. And so Joseph is even opening himself up to being hurt again. God does the same thing with us, amen? I can hurt God. It hurt. When I fail God, when I sin against God, it hurts him. But he wouldn't love me very much if he just hemmed me in and said, okay, well, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you live in this little box over here, Jeff. But I'm going to hang on to these things that you did, and if you ever do them again, oh, it's going to be a bad day for you. And so God totally restores. God has complete restoration and reconciliation. When he forgives us, he forgives us as far as the east is from the west. Amen? He chooses to no longer remember our transgressions. Even though he cannot forget anything, he does not hold those things against us. Any of it. You're not going to have to worry about it. You, you get to heaven. Yeah, you know, I was going to let you in. But this thing you did 50 years ago, that's just not cool. So sorry, but you can't come into heaven. Because I was hanging on to that one. I never actually really forgave you of that one. There wasn't total restoration. There wasn't total forgiveness. I, I, I kind of wanted to deal with you a little bit hands off here. So sorry, but you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that particular thing in your life. That will never happen to us. Because God's forgiveness is total. It's complete. There is nothing lacking in the forgiveness of the Lord. And there should be nothing lacking in the forgiveness of his people either. Notice it says, and afterwards, his brothers talked with him. It seems like a, a, a simple sentence. But it speaks volumes. He's the second in command in all of Egypt. And his brothers are looking to not die. They've come down and they're going to talk to this very powerful person, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And it says, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. And the word that's there, it means to have conversation with. It wasn't like, well, write me a report about what you need. It wasn't text me later, bro. No, they're sitting around crying and talking and I love you and I, 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 I'm so sorry for what's happened. The inference is, is the, these, these brothers are now having the type of conversation. If they'd had it 23 years earlier, we wouldn't even have these chapters in the Bible because restoration could have happened then. We 
we have to look at this in a, in a New Testament sense exactly in the same way. When we are estranged from our brothers and sisters in the Lord, when we're estranged from our family, it, it ought to lead us to the type of forgiveness that restores fellowship and communion. You can tell if forgiveness is real if it restores fellowship and communion. You can tell if forgiveness is not real if there's no restoration of forgiveness or, rest, or, or of fellowship and communion. You're, you're not close. That's not real restoration. It might be what you can do in the moment. But God wants the restoration of the relationship. And, and so I want to speak to you married couples for, for a minute. This is absolutely life-altering in your marriage relationship. If you will look at everything the way Joseph's situation is here with his brothers, I think we could all say this is an absolutely impossible situation and these two have irreconcilable differences. Amen? Would that be a fair assessment? If there were ever irreconcilable differences, you have them right here. Joseph was sold into slavery. They faked his death. They lied about him being alive. They used him to get to their father. This is irreconcilable differences. But I want you to see how God sees irreconcilable differences. If you're willing to repent, if you're willing to turn around, if you're willing to let go of the wrongs, if you're willing to put down the hatchet, if you will drop the baseball bat of retribution and say, look, I, I know that for my part, I want more than anything else to be restored, that God can restore anything. But if you want to hang on to all that stuff, if you want to bathe yourself in the past, if you want to cling to the junk that's happened to you and you want to keep dredging it up, if you think for a moment that dredging up the past is ever going to fix the past, let me just be the first one to tell you, it ain't. It does not matter how much you dredge up the past. It won't change. It's still going to be exactly what it was. The only difference that's going to really matter is if you're willing to let go of the past and say, I choose to forgive that. And I want a restoration of relationship, so I want fellowship and communion. So in your marriage relationship, if you see how Joseph responds here, he does not respond by saying, well, you hurt me, and so I'm out. He responds by saying, you hurt me, but I'm going to love you. I'm going to show you what it looks like to die to myself because I want you to know exactly the kind of love that God has for us. He made it possible through all of this hurt because of God's great grace and his mercy to do the right thing in that moment and he did what every married couple has to do. Somebody has to take the first step towards restoration. Somebody's got to put down the hatchet and bury the handle. So I'm not, I'm not going to pick that up anymore. It reminds me of the way King David dealt with the sins of his sons. If you'll 
put this into practice in your relationships. You're going to see what forgiveness, when it's lived out, really can do for you. Because it's perfect. Let's, let's be honest about this. None of us are perfect. Amen? Anybody in here perfect? Good. Because you're not. And you never will be while you still have breath and you're walking on this earth. You're going to always have issues. There are going to be things that people can look at and go, well, that, that was kind of not nice. That, that was not good. That was pretty ugly. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? So when you're looking at other people, you have to see them through your own eyes. You say, look, I, I want to give you what I myself need because I need mercy and I need forgiveness and I need restoration in my life. I need God to sometimes take the first step back towards me. I'm going to take the first step towards you. I want to be restored. I want to experience forgiveness. Think about the life of David as he forgave his sons. He actually forgave his sons with zero evidence that there was any repentance on the part of Absalom. He just chose to forgive them. These two sons ultimately proved unworthy of that forgiveness. But from David's part, he did the right thing. And so he was freed from it. Any of the negative consequences, the implications of him hanging on to that junk was gone the moment he chose to let it go. Choose to let it go. The second half of this chapter is really a celebration. You can see three principal things in it. God always makes good on his promises. God always makes good on his promises. Now, from a human perspective, here's our problem. He very often doesn't make good on those promises in the time frame in which we'd like him to do that. We want instantaneous answers. We want our promises kept immediately. We want everything on our timeline. We expect God to do things our way, and he just simply doesn't do things our way. Amen? His ways are not our ways. Our ways are not his ways. He is so high above our ways that we can't know exactly what he's doing, but God makes good on his promises. And so he does exactly what you would expect God to do. He fully restores everybody. That's because he's good. He gives them the fat of the land. He gives them the best land. He does exactly what you would expect God to do. Expect God to keep his promises. That's the celebration of, of forgiveness. When you declare that, look, I'm going to choose to be a forgiver, you can walk in the promises of God. But when you hinder the promises of God by hanging on to things that shouldn't be in your life, then you forestall the goodness of the Lord because God's going to let you suffer through it while you hang on to the garbage. While you're hanging on to the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred, then you will not have the good things that God wants for you. So the quickest path to God fulfilling these promises of restoration, of grace and of mercy and these good things happening in your life is to let go of the stuff and stop adding to God's to-do list. God has enough to do with our lives just the way we've already messed them up. If we add, to new, add new things, then God has to deal with those new things. And so God will make good on those promises. Let him make good by you not adding something else that he has to handle. 
A second thing you can see in verses 22 and 23 is that's when all the gifts begin to flow from God. All the goodness is released in God. In that sense, the brothers originally had taken Joseph's robe from him and they sold him. And, and, you know, and, and now he's giving them new clothes. Do you see it? They, he's returning good for evil, isn't he? He's saying, look, you guys, you guys took my coat coated it in blood, and told dad I was dead. How does he respond to that? Well, give me your coats. I'm going I'm to put blood all over, and I'm sending like all your coats back to dad. I'm going to tell him you're dead. You see, that's what retribution does, right? That's what anger and vengeance stirs up in us. Well, I'll just get my pound of flesh. Joseph does exactly what Jesus does for us. He says, look, I'll take your beating and I'm going to give you good in this place. And when you do that, you totally leave people defenseless for the goodness of God. You want to get inside of somebody's head, do good to somebody who deserves to have evil done to them. Because in a sense, anything these brothers would have gotten, you could say they would have deserved it, amen? So it wouldn't wouldn't have shocked anybody if this story ended like the story of Achan. It's like, well, and God just slew them. Because they were evil. We'd all been going, yay, they're gone. But instead, the Lord gives them carts, and the Lord gives them food, and the Lord gives them money, and the Lord gives them clothes. Everything that they intended and used for evil, God says, let me show you how this really works. I'm going to give you good things. It's a picture of God's grace in our lives. And so the gifts begin to flow. And it just opens up the, the floodgates of God's blessing. The moment you begin to go God's direction, God comes your direction because he's, he's always wanting his will in our lives. And so when you start heading towards him, the gap closes quicker. If there's anything I can tell you about running track, I don't know how many of you have ever run track, but in track events, especially the long-distance track events, if you're not one of the faster people, if you're not out in the front, you have this this really hideous thing of being able to look and watch the people go around the curve in front of you and now they're on the other side and you're running to catch them but they're actually coming up behind you because they're going the same direction that you're going. If you were to turn around and run the opposite direction, you would close the distance twice as fast, amen? So if you were to just simply change direction, that's actually what repentance is. It's changing direction you start running the direction towards God when you do that you get to where God wants you to go quicker if you're trying to chase after God the direction he's going and he's going a different direction it takes you longer to catch him and if you're not running at all and he's moving in general direction it even takes longer still so the quickest way is run back towards God that's how God's gifts begin to flow in our lives. When you have contention, you have to run away from contention and back towards the Lord. And the third and final thing, you, you can see how revival breaks out in this family. Jacob, Israel, is not, not remotely prepared for this report. He, he's like, he doesn't believe it. It's like, there's no way. It's too good. That's what revival is in our hearts. It's too good to believe. It's like, really, Lord, my my relationship is restored with you? Yeah. That's why grace is so amazing. 
You mean I can be forgiven by asking? Yep. And so revival breaks out. Jacob almost has a heart attack in that sense. It's like his heart stops, his heart leaps. Jacob's heart fainted. If you actually look at the original words here, it means his heart was numb. He was numbed by by the beauty of the situation. He's like, I I don't believe it. All the pain that he had gone through is all of a sudden negated by this beautiful thing. Jacob's going to be 130 years old when he heads to Egypt. That's a long time to wait for, for God to turn a situation around. But you can see how it took longer because of what Jacob did. And so when you do things God's way, God makes good on his promises. Gifts begin to flow. Revival begins to happen. But it really all starts with us simply confessing that there's a problem. Seeking towards true repentance that that leads to true forgiveness, that brings about true reconciliation, that ultimately will bring about true restoration, and then you get true revival. You see these things all work together. Some people want to skip to the revival part without there being any restoration, without there being any repentance. There's no reconciliation. There's no restoration. They want the end result without doing all the parts that get there. And it just simply never happens. If you jump over all the rest of these things, if you will not confess, if you will not repent, if there has not been forgiveness, if you don't have reconciliation, if you don't have restoration, then you will never get to real revival either. And so you have to let God do these things. This is the way God was then. This is the way God is today. This is how he works The Lord thy God changes not. Amen? Isn't that what scripture says? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whatever was his mindset in the Old Testament is still his mindset. It's still his character and his nature. And to this beautiful passage of scripture that reminds us of the fruits of forgiveness. And I pray that we walk in it. Amen? Why don't you stand and we'll pray together and bring some of the pastors up. And if you need prayer after service, maybe there's something going on where you need to just start that process, just do it tonight because God can take anything that was meant for evil and turn it to good if we'll go the direction that we need to go to get there. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the glorious work of your spirit in our lives. And God, we are just so grateful Uh, that while we were yet sinners, sinning, that you, Jesus, came and died for us. And uh, Father, we thank you for the beauty of the forgiveness that we already have in you, and we pray that we would be forgivers. Lord, the fruits of that forgiveness would just flow forth out of our lives. Uh, We pray, God, that you would release in us uh, your incredible goodness. Lord, we pray that that restoration that we have would be complete, It wouldn't be fake. Lord, that the works that you do in us would be true. Lord, that we wouldn't hold anything back from you. And that, God, you would just bless us with your presence. I pray if there's anyone here tonight that's got a broken relationship with someone. Lord, maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's a parent with a child. Lord, maybe it's aunts and uncles and cousins. Maybe it's in the workplace or just some friend that they know. 
Lord, I know that all these relationships matter to you and they matter to your kingdom's work in our lives. And so, God, we just turn over those things that uh, we've hung on to and we ask you to take them. We know that you're good and that you'll be gentle. And so, Lord, thanks for blessing us with forgiveness for our own sin. Pray that we would hold nothing against other people, but release the things of the past so that we can walk in the present and head towards the future, which we know from your perspective is good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.